Hello, you are listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 3, Sister Amy. This is the Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and songs from Colorado's creative community. I'm one of the hosts, Josh Madison. And I'm the other host, Ryan Connell. As always, we are actively accepting submissions, uh, stories, comedy bits, music, general weirdness. We really do want it all. So you can email us at denverorbit at gmail.com or go to denverorbit.com and fill out the contact form there. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, About a year ago, Ryan and I had an idea for a totally different podcast. We were going to call it The Substratum, and it was going to be about weird stories, weird people, and ideas from history. Right, but being total nerds, we wanted to make sure we didn't mess it up. So uh, as that turns out, it takes a lot of time and research. Right, and we have jobs, I have kids. I watch a lot of TV. Uh, So instead, we decided to just fold that idea into this show. We'll still do those stories and release them here and there whenever they're ready. It's just we need a little more time to work on them. Right. Uh, And by the way, if you have an idea for a documentary or or something you'd like to hear on the show, let us know, especially if it's connected to Colorado in some way. So we're just going to do this one story. Uh, It's going to take up the whole episode. It's the proof of concept that we did for the other podcast. Yeah. So you'll hear some of that in in the show. You'll hear us introduce it and and the theme song but uh Uh, and this one's particularly interesting uh to me personally i'm a bit of a religious history nerd it's uh the story of a kind of proto televangelist named sister amy simple mcpherson i think you'll enjoy it so here we go imagine a rural summer night let's say 1918 or so Crickets and cicadas are buzzing. The air is beginning to cool off from the heat of the day. You're walking through a field. As you cross the field, you are joined by more and more people. Friends and neighbors. You're heading for a tent in the distance. As you get closer, you see lights and start to hear music. Over the music, you begin to hear what you've come for. The preacher's voice. We have no need to doubt God. God lives. God's word is true. God's word has been proven. Angela Temple with this great multitude here today. There was no television then, no movies, not even radio. You had church on Sunday, but this was something far more exciting. Religious revivals were not only for the devout, though they attended those services by the thousands. There was a real sense of wonder here, almost entertainment. That's right. There were lots of different preachers traveling around, spreading and interpreting their gospel in different ways. But this night was especially exciting because of who you are here to see, a young woman preacher. When faith is lost and honor dies, man is dead. Faith, it has been said, sometimes it has a trembling hand as it approaches God, but it must never have a withered hand. It must stretch. What you wouldn't know then is that this woman would create a virtual empire. She would be the first woman to be issued a radio license. She would build a church that is now considered a historic landmark. She would create a Bible school and even found her own denomination. Christians, especially evangelical Christians, were early fervent adopters of radio and used it to great effect. But, as we'll see, increased exposure and access to a wider audience would lead to greater scrutiny, which, in the case of this particular woman, would prove to be problematic. 
This is the story of Amy Simple McPherson. Wait, wait a minute. Who are you and what are we doing here? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good point. I'm Ryan Connell. And I'm Josh Madison. And you're listening to The Substratum. Hello and welcome to The Substratum. A podcast that explores the layers beneath the surface. So, let's get back to our tent from earlier. As you get nearer to the tent, you see a Packard car outside, dusty and well-traveled. On the side is painted, Jesus is coming, get ready. Sister Amy has been traveling around the country in it, going from town to town and spreading the Pentecostal message, which was almost always accompanied by jumping, dancing, shouting, and strong emotional reactions, including speaking in tongues and rolling on the floor while weeping. Many would claim to have received divine healing from her rallies. Amy herself took a long and winding road to get here as well. Amy grew up on a farm outside of Ontario, Canada. Amy was both enamored with religion, giving sermons to her dolls, and rebellious of it, going to movies and reading novels, activities that were frowned upon by the Methodist Church. Then, in high school, she was taught Darwin's theory of evolution, and her entire life changed. Now, Amy was always curious and found she had some real questions about evolution and the Bible and how those two accounts seemed to kind of contradict each other. She turned to Methodist pastors and all the different preachers who would visit her town with questions about the intersection of faith and science and was always unhappy with the answers they gave her. This spurned her to write a letter to the Canadian newspapers Family Herald and Weekly Star, questioning why taxpayer money was being used to undermine Christianity in the form of teaching Darwin, which... Sounds familiar now, I'm sure. Uh, She was searching for something. Around this time, two major things happened. Uh, Robert Simple, a Pentecostal preacher from Ireland, came to her town to speak, and she converted to Pentecostalism while at his rally. Just a few short months later, she was married to him. She was only 18 at the time. It's been pretty hard to nail down exactly how old Robert Simple was, but he was clearly much older. Yeah, but that's the 20s, though, right? Yeah, totally. It's it's good to keep that in mind. But there's something kind of striking here um, in her choice to marry not just a minister, but the minister that converts her to Pentecostalism. This is not just a sect like the Baptist or Methodist. This is a very emotional and mystical movement within Christianity. One could say it's even sensual. I'm speculating, but it's not hard to imagine that her sexuality was being awakened at the same time as her spirituality, and by the same person, no less. I can imagine that this muddied up those aspects of her identity a little, maybe even made them intertwined. A lot happens very quickly. She marries Robert. She learns about speaking in glossolalia and translating it too. Which is... Oh, glossolalia is speaking in tongues. It's uh, pretty common in the Pentecostal sects. She goes with Robert on an evangelical tour of China. She gets pregnant, and he gets malaria and dies, leaving her alone in a foreign country with a baby, Roberta Starr Semple. She returns to the States and she remarries within a year, this time to a man named Harold Stewart McPherson, and has another child named Rolf Potter Kennedy McPherson. However, she feels a strong pull towards preaching the gospel and goes again on the road taking the children on a preaching tour in the aforementioned Packard. 
Harold, an accountant by the way, joins her for a time but finds the life of a traveling evangelist not to his liking and goes back home, eventually divorcing her, although not for another decade, which seems odd to us a century later, but hey, it was the 1920s. It's safe to say she's moved on though, because at this point she is packing multiple tents of people wanting to hear her preach the gospel, speak in tongues, and heal the sick and dying. In the short span of just a few years, she has quickly become one of the biggest religious figures in America. The crowds at every stop are getting bigger and bigger, and she's getting tired of being on the road. So she settles in Los Angeles and eventually builds Angeles Temple, which seats around 5,300 people in the Echo Park area. Angeles Temple is still there, by the way. It's a beautiful Art Deco building. And she starts preaching. She calls her ministry the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Well, I wish that you might know the joy of it, the preaching the gospel, the seeing the thousands wending their way down the altars to kneel at the feet of Jesus, the crucified. And now, after all of these years, they've come to crown our labors, beautiful Angelus Temple, this magnificent building, the largest sitting capacity church in the American continent, where we have 16,000 members, a Sunday school of 4,500 children, 800 branch churches and the work spreading today on the first day but this is really all just the beginning from here her career skyrocketed she was almost as big as a celebrity as any hollywood star at the time this fame and recognition however did not bring her the solace she was searching for sister amy came from a rural and poor background with a limited education her ministry started humbly with a message about returning to the fundamentals of christianity but it exploded rapidly due to her powerful charisma, her grasp of technology, and innate showmanship. Keep in mind, this was the 20s. It was not common or popular or even necessarily accepted for a single mother to be preaching this message to a devout audience. And this brought her attention from outside of the loyal evangelical community, but also from the wider secular world. I think it's important to note that she wasn't just a celebrity. Uh, but she had grown to be seen as a, a prophet. She was more than just a preacher in the eyes of her followers, but somehow specially anointed and blessed by God. And being seen as a prophet and a visionary, she was surrounded by true believers who would never question her or doubt that what she was saying didn't come directly from God. A classic case of what my friend has called the Jar Jar Binks hypothesis. You're, uh, you're going to have to explain that one, I think. Well, it's, it's really simple. My friend believes that George Lucas was perceived as such a visionary that no one was willing to challenge him or believe that he was making a mistake. People had doubted him when he was making Star Wars, and everyone was really wrong about that. And so no one wanted to make that mistake again. So George Lucas was allowed to create the most annoying alien since Elf. Maybe Mork. <laughs> I think we could see the same thing with Amy McPherson at the height of her ministry. People believe that she could do no wrong. You know, not only uh, would that kind of insulation go straight to your head, it would have to be really isolating and lonely, too. And this is a recurring theme in Amy's life. The very human need to be surrounded by people, to have intimate bonds with them, that would often clash with her public persona and even her personal faith. And that faith, not coincidentally, was the foundation of her church's entire doctrine. The pressure to be seen as holy and without sin must have been enormous. So she becomes the first woman to ever receive a license to broadcast radio. Uh, and this was when it was a brand new medium. 
In addition to her radio show, she's publishing not one, but two magazines, The Four Square Crusader and The Bridal Call. By the way, what's with the name Bridal Call? It's, uh, yeah, she's, the church is the Bride of Christ. Um, uh, right. There's a returning of the church to, uh, back to, you know, their first love. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot, there's a lot of weird Christian slang jargon, right? Yeah. Um, and she's, so in addition to those two magazines, she's also putting on a nightly sermons at her temple. And these aren't just her talking from the pulpit. They're huge spectacles, complete with elaborate sets and actors and music. She wears a police uniform and drives a motorcycle on stage. She has a public trial of liberal professors. That's awesome, by the way. Yeah, we looked for it. We promise we looked for it. (laughs) And has a whole sermon where she debates evolution against a man in an ape suit. She brings in live animals and Broadway-style productions. There are huge choirs, full orchestras, all the newest technologies on stage with her. It's pretty similar to, say, like a Madonna or a U2 show, but, you know, with just slightly more religious iconography. She goes all out. Here she is, blazing along. She's a huge success. Every night she's packing the house. She is at the height of her ministry and peak of her popularity. Sister Amy is at this point one of the most famous people in the country. And then, one day in May of 1926, Sister Amy just disappears. Amy was an avid swimmer and decided to spend her morning along with her assistant swimming in Venice Beach. Her assistant grew worried after she couldn't find her since sometime either before or after her morning swim. Accounts on that differ. There was an immediate search of the Venice Beach area. Uh, It was already super touristy at that time, so very populated. And nothing turned up. It was assumed that she had drowned uh, her followers, and indeed many people around the country were in shock. Not unlike Elvis, however, there were reports of sightings of Sister Amy from all over the country. These were easily dismissed as they were often on the same day, at the same time, and in multiple locations. More bizarrely, though, letters and notes began to appear saying that Sister Amy had been kidnapped and they were demanding ransom. These were dutifully all sent to the police, but... Her mother and ministry officials were dismissive of them, believing that the notes to be mostly just hoaxes. After a month, plans for funeral arrangements and memorial services began. Huh. So that's it? She just dies? I thought there was a little more to this. Well, this is where things get a little tricky. Everyone had given up for dead, But three days after her funeral, and mind you, three days is a significant time for people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. She shows up in a small Sonoran town called Agua Prieta in Mexico, just across the border from Douglas, Arizona. She says she walked across the burning sands of the desert to get there. She was, she said, fleeing from her kidnappers. This is her account of what happened. So Amy says that she was indeed out for a swim and having finished it, was just hanging out on the beach when she was approached by a young couple seeking prayers for their child, who they said was sick. Always one to help, Sister Amy went to their car but was grabbed from behind, thrown into the car and taken to a shack in Mexico. She said she was drugged and held captive by three Americans, a man named Steve, a woman named Rose, 
and an unnamed third man. They were holding her for ransom of a half a million dollars. Although she said she was never left alone, there was one day when all her captors were out running errands. She said she was able to saw through the ropes holding her and escape out of a window. She fled across the desert on foot and, using a mountain to navigate, proceeded to walk 20 miles in the 100-plus degree heat until finally collapsing at a house in Agua Prieta. The residents of the house found her, took her to a hospital in Douglas where she recovered and was able to contact her people. That's kind of an incredible story. Is that all there is to it? It feels odd. Well, there were some questions. For one, she disappeared while wearing a bathing suit, but reappeared in a dress. She wasn't wearing a watch before, but now has one on. Her clothes are clean. Her shoes look brand new. She doesn't ask for water when she's rescued and doesn't even look like she's been sweating. All this creates a competing narrative to her official story. That narrative, proffered by the Los Angeles District Attorney during his investigation of her disappearance, goes a little something like this. At the same time that Amy disappeared, a man named Kenneth Orniston disappeared as well. Ormiston was the married station manager of the Christian radio station KFSG, where Sister Amy broadcasts a number of her shows. He had rented a cottage in the town of Carmel-by-the-Sea and was seen coming and going with an unidentified woman. In fact, this unidentified woman, who some witnesses said resembled Amy, had been seen with Orniston at a number of different hotels up and down the coast during the duration of Amy's kidnapping. The case went to a grand jury where jurors heard more testimony from witnesses saying that they had seen the couple in California. And a handwriting expert testified that the signatures on several hotel registries matched Amy's. A case was being made both through the grand jury and in the press, who were all breathlessly reporting all of this, that Amy had had an affair with Ormiston. Amy stuck to her story, though, and her account never changed. Finally, after months of this back and forth, a separate woman, Elizabeth Tovey, came forward saying she was the one who was with Kenneth Ormiston during this time. Due to this revelation, as well as charges of evidence mishandling, witness testimony changing, general prosecutorial misconduct, and just basically a mess of that whole trial, the case was dropped. On a side note, Los Angeles cleaned up its DA's office and there was never a problem with a celebrity trial or any kind of misconduct in the court system ever again. Oh, thank God. And these great armfuls of roses on this my anniversary. Amy Semple McPherson and the name Angela Temple has sometimes, I guess to our friend, seems synonymous with trouble and with test. But now I think that the clouds have rolled away and the sun is shining. Sometimes I feel like the story our postmaster but through all of this, her ministry remained strong and remained so until she died. Amy herself, however, remained troubled. There are a few other smaller scandals as well. She argued bitterly with her mother over the management of the Church of the Four Square Gospel, as well as her appearance, which was beginning to resemble a flapper, more stylish, rather than a matronly woman of faith. And there are reports that those arguments would turn violent. Whether those reports are true or not, her mother had left the church and eventually cut ties with Amy completely. There were rumors that she had a facelift and also rumors of other affairs. Milton Burl, of all people, claims to have slept with her. There were a couple of lawsuits, one from her daughter and from church officials, about these rumors and financial difficulties within the church. 
Amy saw this as a plot to wrest control of Angela's temple away from her, leading to her becoming estranged from her daughter. And her daughter at that point had been the heir apparent to the ministry. In September of 1944, Amy was found unconscious in a hotel room she had been traveling to promote her Story of My Life sermon with an empty bottle of barbiturates at her bedside. She was pronounced dead later that morning. Although the coroner said that her death was most likely the result of a, quote, accidental overdose, her cause of death is officially listed as unknown. Her death was mourned by people from all over the world, with some 50,000 people coming to Los Angeles to pay their respects. Her son, Rolf, eventually took over the ministry. Amy once gave a sermon where she talked about being forced to walk a sort of tightrope between traditional Christianity and Pentecostalism. But I think that metaphor applies to basically every aspect of her life. She used modern technology to bring a message that was very much against modernism. She thought that denominations were too confining and restrictive, but yet she founded a denomination of her own. She dressed in form-fitting clothes and clearly used her sex appeal to gain attention, but still preached against prohibition and fornication. She was in a lot of ways a constant contradiction, and people like that are always kind of fascinating to me. So what's the bigger picture? What's the takeaway from all of this? Well, when I think about McPherson, what really strikes me is how isolated and lonely she must have been. The pressure to maintain the appearance of having transcended sin and human needs while still being a human with human needs must have been impossible to sustain. I read a lot of stories about evangelists and preachers. It's kind of an obsession of mine, and I've seen this recurring theme over and over. The more widespread the popularity and success of your ministry, the holier people think that you are, the bigger a voice of morality you are, uh, the bigger it is that you fall. But that's just me. I get a little obsessed with religion. Let me ask you, Josh. So you weren't raised in church and don't have any uh, the inherent fascination that I, I do. What is it that fascinates you about her? Like if you were, say you were at a bar, and you're telling somebody about her, like, what would you say? Well, I, you know, I'm fascinated by cults of personality of all stripes and, you know, religious, non-religious, uh, just find them to be inherently interesting. And, you know, kind of an interesting thing about Amy Semple McPherson is when you research her life, you find so much information about her as a person and much less about her ministry and her spiritual message specifically, which I think speaks to a lot about the way we view this I first read about her in a comic history book called The Big Book of Weirdos. And Which it, is fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's great. And I'm always fascinated with the idea of the messenger eclipsing the message. And there's, of course, the inherent interest in the juicy scandal. But, uh, you know, that aside, I think what gets me is this seems like a very modern story. There's so many familiar elements that we see and we'll see again in history. The sex scandals, the money scandals. And so much of this just happens again and again and again. It's a fascinating aspect of our culture in a way that we're just about okay with almost every kind of transgression except for sex, corruption, and hypocrisy. Totally. And I think if we just look at Christian culture, not necessarily Christianity itself, but the, the culture of it, the way that they present themselves to the world, a lot of that seems to stem from McPherson and a few others like her. She created this 
brand new way to speak about faith. The way she used a sort of secular kind of entertainment, vaudeville, Broadway, flash costumes, it all really blurred the line between the sacred and the profane. And it's all kind of commonplace now if you think about Christian rock or the Left Behind series or VeggieTales or, you know, Creed. Um, Lifehouse, whatever. Uh, But it was kind of revolutionary at the time. And I think she expanded the way that Christians could share their message. And though we agreed that we wouldn't stay away from politics on this one, because Lord knows there's plenty of politics right now, um, she it's important to know that she didn't ever shy away from politics. Uh, And those politics were the exact same that you hear from evangelicals today. And she had a big part in that. If nothing else, she helped pioneer the the rather new and growing idea of the time, that the church has a powerful role to play in politics and hot-button issues. I can only imagine what her illustrated sermons would look like now. I mean, we joked about how she would bring a monster truck in (laughs) to the church or something. Uh, But more than that, like what's hard to imagine is that any woman being like Amy Semple McPherson today, even now, uh, a single mother... Um, creating this ministry entirely on her own. An empire, really. Yeah, it's uh, really remarkable even now, but in the 20s, totally amazing. Um, There's no doubt to me that she was ahead of her time, but I kind of think she was even ahead of our time as well. Yeah, I think she's a fascinating person, and it's almost impossible to understate just how important she was at helping sculpt the face of modern evangelical Christianity in shaping the way the secular world perceives and reports on evangelical Christianity. If you want to read more about Amy Simple McPherson, check out uh, the works of Matthew Avery Sutton, Daniel Mark Epstein, and Edith Blomhofer. We took a lot from their research for this podcast, and they've all written pretty amazing books about her. And that's the show for today. You can check us out elsewhere, of course, on the internets. We're at Facebook at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. And we're over at the Instagram uh, at Denver Orbit. Uh, the show today was written and produced by Ryan Connell. That's me. And Josh Madison. That's me. Uh, with editing and sound design by Josh Madison. Also me. And you know what? We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>